Quick note that the following episode of Canada Land may contain subject matter and language that some people will find offensive. We are living through an unprecedented moment in the history of the free press. It's never been done before, this thing that is happening right now in Canada, this thing that has been happening for the last two years. Other countries are considering it. Canada is actually doing it. We have crossed a line that was considered holy for like over 100 years, the line that separates the press from the government. The relationship reporters are supposed to have with governments is adversarial, on purpose and by design. They try to conceal info, we try to reveal it. They try to use their power and do things without having to explain why, we demand answers. Doesn't always actually happen that way in practice, but that has always been the idea. And to protect that idea, it has always been thought that the press must be independent. You hear those words together a lot, the independent press. But you can't be independent from somebody who pays you an allowance. You can't be independent from somebody whose money you rely on to live. You can't be independent from someone who you literally depend on for survival. But that is exactly what we're currently trying to do. And that is absolutely fascinating. Whatever else it is, Whatever opinions I may have about it, it is really interesting to be a media reporter in a country that is conducting this unprecedented experiment in the history of the free press. Two years ago, the federal government started to roll out several streams of support, tax breaks, newsroom wage subsidies, a $600 million ongoing plan to save the news media from bankruptcy. The Trudeau government pushed past the debates, past the philosophical and academic discussions about lofty ideals of press independence, all of that. They moved into the practical application of permanent news subsidies. No need to speculate, no need to hypothesize about what that might do to the press. Now I can report on what it is doing. Except I can't. I can't because they're not telling us. They promised that they would tell us. Here is Evan Solomon interviewing Heritage Minister Pablo Rodriguez back in 2019. Will you promise to make every decision this advisory group makes and the next group makes transparent in terms of how your government decides, who is what your government calls a qualified journalistic organization, and why they got the money? Will all that be transparent and no secrecy? Absolutely. Absolutely, all the recommendations. And so, so they, they'll be making recommendations on a lot of things. 100% of the recommendations, as you were asking, will be, uh, will be public. But it's really important that we do so, and we will. That seemed pretty definitive to me. But Evan Solomon wanted to make super duper sure that there was no wiggle room in there. What I want to know what's public is the applications. People want to know whatever media organization applies for money from this $600 million fund, will the applications be public and the decision as to who gets the money and who doesn't and why, will that be public? Yes, I think, yes. And yet, no. No, we do not know who applied. No, 
we don't know who got in. No, we don't know how much money those who did get in are receiving from the government. And it's not that we're waiting for the promised transparency, waiting, as is so often the case, for the slow-moving wheels of bureaucracy to deliver on the government's promise. No. What happened is, somewhere along the way, they went back on that promise. This stuff is now officially a secret. There are a few cases in which news organizations themselves have provided answers, usually in the case of public companies that have to disclose this kind of stuff. And we do know the names of some of the news organizations that got into the program. We don't know anything else about how much money they're getting or any of that. But we do know some names because in those cases, the names of the news organizations have to be disclosed in order for the subscribers of those news companies to get a tax write-off. But the majority of the information and the most important information is being kept confidential by the government. Of course, there is another potential way that reporters could find out answers to these questions about Canadian news organizations. We could just ask them. And so we did. Canada Land asked 77 news organizations to disclose their status. Are they participating with the media bailout? And if so, how? And the way that this works, by the way, is first, a news organization applies for QCJO status. That is government status as a qualified Canadian journalism organization. That's the first gate. That's the one where the government's board of journalism experts read your company's news stories and they decide if you are worthy. But getting that status all by itself doesn't get you any money. It's just the first step. Once you have QCJO status, then you can apply for other programs like the main one, the wage subsidy, or the ability to give your subscribers tax receipts. There's other things as well. So yes, we wrote to 77 news organizations asking them to disclose their QCJO status and more, and three of them replied to us with answers. I can understand why. I get why the other 74 said nothing. I might not respect it, but I do understand it. I mean, who wants to put up their hand and say, yeah, us, over here, our newsroom receives hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars a year from Canadians. Whether Canadians want to or not, they are paying us to produce our news stories. Please proceed to harass us on Twitter accordingly. I get why they don't want to say that. Or even worse, who wants to put up their hand and say, yeah, over here, uh, we want it in. We were dying to take millions of dollars from the same government that we report on. But they rejected us because they deemed our editorial standards too low. Neither of those disclosures, whether you got in or whether you were shut out, neither of them really would help build a news organization's credibility or their trust with the public, which is one of the reasons why Canada Land has not pursued this government funding. If we have nothing to hide or to be embarrassed about, then we can be free to report. That was the idea anyhow, but we can't report information we don't know. Who does know? Answers to our questions are determined by a board of just five people. Five news experts who were appointed by a panel that was appointed by the government. This board meets in secret, and they make decisions about who is worthy and who is not. You cannot go online to watch videos of their secret board meetings. They don't publish transcripts. They don't publish minutes. They do not publish the results. But their chairperson... Colette Brin, a journalism professor, has agreed to give me an interview. 
Wait for it. Listen, I really want to thank you for speaking with me today because there's so little that's been reported or documented about how it's actually playing out in real life. I'm really glad to be here. This is a process that has some confidentiality to it because it's uh, tax information. And so we were actually, the whole board were actually thoroughly briefed on uh, what that means in terms of not being able to provide certain types of information. And of course, we're all basically journalists, so we would all love to say everything <laughs> that we do, but we are not able to, unfortunately. But I can certainly speak to the process as it concerns the board itself. So what we do is really look at a very small piece of an organization's application, which is a small but important piece as regards the practice of journalism itself. It's the crucial piece. Okay, well, that's the big question. What is journalism? Which I hope we don't have to answer. We don't see ourselves as being the journalism police or the journalism popes or whatever. We're not determining what is journalism, what isn't journalism. But what is the kind of journalism that is really targeted with this program? Okay, I, th I think we have to get into that because though you're just one piece of the puzzle, the beating heart of this, the part that was so thorny and controversial of like, at some point, if you're going to be subsidizing journalists, you've got to decide who qualifies. We may differ on this, but I think that maybe does involve deciding who is a journalist and who isn't. What is the process? If a news organization wants to be given this government stamp of qualified Canadian journalism organization, what do they have to do? Well, the three criteria that we look at, are they engaged in the production of original news content? So original news content is considered to be general interest, including the coverage of democratic institutions and processes, not strictly that. And when we talk about news, it means it's not primarily opinion, not primarily entertainment or lifestyle, and it's not targeted to a specific industry. So if you're doing like a magazine just about skiing, well, that's not going to be considered original news content as defined by the act. Mm -hmm. So that's the first piece. And if you're also doing a lot of kind of aggregating and reproducing news releases or content from other news organizations, that's not going to be considered original either. And of course, anything that's advertorial or promotional. So that's the biggest part of what we do, of what we look at. And then there is the regular employment of at least two journalists which work at arm's length from the organization. And that's very fiscal expertise talk to say that they're not shareholders or owners of the organization, or they don't have a personal relation to someone who is in that situation. So they're not married to or father or parent or sister or brother. The point of the board is that these are journalism experts. One part that you are responsible for is determining if the employees are journalists or not. How do you determine who is a journalist and who isn't? That's a really tricky one, actually, because the original news content determines whether journalism is being done or the kind of journalism that is supported by this program. And then we compare what the content that is journalism and the employees, the list of employees that is provided by CRA. So we say, yes, these people are doing journalism. But of course, we're not giving out ID cards or press passes or anything like that. It's really kind of a general assessment that, yes, there is journalism being done here. And it's a pretty broad definition. We're very uh, aware of debates, legislative and even philosophical debates, about 
how do you define who is a journalist? So someone who does, for instance, a layout, editing, all kinds of different things, not just reporters, photographers, videographers. These people are considered journalists in a very broad sense. But if a publisher says, I've got these two employees, your job is to determine they have to be journalists for you to get the QCGO status. So you're not going through their CVs or looking at whether they went to journalism school. No. So what are you doing? How are you determining if... if, So uh, as I just tried to explain, we look at the content and we say, yes, there is original news content being done by this organization and the list of employees and their titles. And we see that they are either writing and reporting or they are doing other things such as layout or photography or editing. So it's a very broad... We don't get into individual CVs or education or anything like that. Essentially, if it's journalism, it was made by a journalist for your purposes. Yes. So that takes us to, is it journalism, which is the bulk of what you do? Is it original news content? Is it original news content? Okay. So there is a lot of journalism not being supported by this program. This is a targeted program aiming at original news content, which is general interest, and includes the coverage of democratic institutions and processes. So you could say that a magazine, a business magazine, targeting a specific industry, that's journalism. But it's not the kind of journalism that's being supported by this program. You could say opinion advocacy journalism is journalism, but it's not the kind of journalism that's being supported by this program. It's a choice that was made by the legislator. I know that The Logic, which is a business publication, they have QCJO status. Yes. The Narwhal is a... Is... I'm, I'm not allowed to say who does and who doesn't, but if organizations have publicly said that they're getting it, well, yeah. they're not lying. <laughs> <laughs> They've said so. And the Narwhal is specific. It's environmental reporting. So there are... Yeah. Sp- so Yeah. So those are really good examples because they were considered, and I think because they were, they did say so publicly, I think it's okay for me to say that we do consider publications or organizations that do deal with a certain type of news, but through a pretty broad lens in the sense of, and that's really exactly the language that we use in our assessments. So it's a wide lens. The innovation economy and the environment, to use those two examples, are pretty broad. Like The logic is not just about the tech industry, and it's not just for the tech industry. And the Narwhal, they do have a broad view of issues, But it's a very diverse and very journalistic in the sense that they do do a lot of field work and independent reporting. I wouldn't be arguing that they should be excluded. And so far, I think... No, no. These are good examples to show that the interpretation can be pretty broad. And it seems like your board has been taking a pretty broad interpretation. For the purposes of this program, if you're making journalism, you're a journalist. And for the purposes of this program, what is general, what is original news content? It can be about the environment. It can be about business. You've been pretty open. Yeah. What are you close to? What is disqualifying? And you don't read everything when it, when a news organization submits, right? Like you have to yeah. take a sampling of their stuff? Yeah, oh, for sure. It's a lot of work. I mean, just going through typically three weeks of content, uh, because we do want to make sure that the content is the engagement in news production is ongoing. It's not something like just, oh, it's a couple of days before the election and, and or a week before the election, and now we're getting interested in general interest news, but the rest of the time we're just doing advertorial. So advertorial, of course, is excluded. Anything that's really just straight opinion uh, with no reporting or just you know, opinion, advocacy, that's not going to disqualify an organization that they are doing opinion, they are publishing opinion. But if there's no news, there's no firsthand reporting, you know, another 
type of content that's not considered is direct reproduction or very light adaptation of news releases or content from other news sources. Sure. And of course, if you're not attributing that content to the source, well, that's also a red flag. I understand that there's some pretty obvious exclusions for, like you say, advertorial, or if it's just like a lobby group has its own newsletter, that's pretty easy to spot. Yeah. And the lobby group is actually, that would be like the third criteria that we look at, that they're not significantly producing content that is promotional or reporting on a specific organization or association. Yeah. So if it's the publication of a lobby group and they're basically just writing about their interests or their activities, well, then that's not going to qualify. But I, we haven't really received applications of that nature. I think people understand that. So there are finer points, though, in terms of the guidance that's been provided to you where you are getting involved in judgment calls about quality of journalism, as I understand it, you do have to create some sort of a threshold as to whether they're doing the job well or not. Is, is that not accurate? To a certain extent. Again, I would say that our assessment is very broad. For example, we're not going to check that every piece has three different sources from different perspectives. There's a lot of single source material out there. We're not getting into that. Some of these organizations have very small newsrooms, sometimes a single person. You're not doing a lot of like hard-hitting journalism, and that's fine. According to your first annual report, you had 157 news organizations apply and just five of you on this board. So, like, you're reading a lot of news. Well, I'm glad you realize that. It is a lot of work. How many were rejected? We're not allowed to say. You're not allowed to say? No, we're not allowed. And we were hoping to provide those numbers in the report. But what I can say, I think, I, I hope, is that there is a process that we developed in the second year for decision review. So we did do some decision reviews this year. So in those cases, there were initial assessments. Well, actually, our assessment is non-binding. It's the minister who issues the decision. But the decision was negative. Uh And so there was a decision review. And we were involved in that as well. So we redid the process, but with different content. And yeah, so I don't think I can go any further than that. But there is a possibility that a negative decision can be rescinded or reviewed or anyway, that we can go from a negative to a positive decision. Professor Byrne, why can't you tell me the names of why? The, I know that is it's not your rule, but can you explain the rule to me? Why the former heritage minister, when asked about this, said that the entire process was going to be transparent. But you can't tell me the names of who applied, the names of who's rejected. You can't even tell me the number No. Well, the names are tax information. Names of organization, that's very clear in the Income Tax Act, that the names of applicants are actually protected information. Why? It's in the Tax Act. I mean, you're going to have to take that up with the Minister of Revenue and the people at the CRA. That's really not... For me, I can't change the Income Tax Act. It's That's the way it is. I'm not asking you to change it. I'm just... um, Basically, Canadians were told that that this is all going to be transparent, and now we learn that we are paying out of public funds for original news content to be produced. It's subsidized just like the CBC is, but we can't know who's getting that. And if the news organization decides not to tell us, we'll never know what news we're paying for. I know it's not your rule, but do you understand why? Yeah, and I would say that it's even possible that organizations which have been very critical of this program are actually QCGOs. Well, we know that they are. uh, But they're not saying it. Well, Post Media had to say it because they're a public company, so they spent years 
criticizing this, uh, and then they and then they are one of the biggest beneficiaries of it. And we know that because they. Well, have... I think I think Post Media. I mean, there were columnists at Post Media yes. who are criticizing it, but it wasn't the organization so we... itself. So that that's fine. But I, I'm saying that some organizations, not yours, uh, Jesse, but some organizations are actually taking a position against this this program. Wait, you're saying, hold on, hold on a second. But anyway. You're saying um, that there are news organizations that have been bashing this program, secretly taking money from it? I'm saying it's possible. Is the rebel, is the rebel, you can't tell me. I, I'm not, I'm, I don't know if they do or not. I don't know if they do or not, because I don't know where that process is. Okay, well, that part we should clarify for people. I'm not holding you responsible for this secrecy, but I think- No, but it's an interesting question because, you know, there's this idea in the Income Tax Act that the identity of a taxpayer should not be disclosed by the CRA and not by us either. But in this specific case, because of the nature of the tax credit, because it is journalism, because there is a need for transparency, should there be an exception? And I'm not a- you know, I'm not a tax law expert, but as a journalism professor, I would say, and as a someone who's interested in, in journalism policy, I would say, well, maybe this is a case where there should be an exception. Maybe. <laughs> but I'm not going to say that as chair of the board, because obviously that's not my role. You understand that I'm like caught between these I, different... I do. Uh, I'd have to change my hat. <laughs> yeah, but as a journalism professor, look, you know, like the government paid for a research report called the Shattered Mirror Report. Mm -hmm. And in that report, the, the new version of which is paid for to inform these policies, they wrote, journalism is founded on the principle that the public interest is best served by the public disclosure of the facts of civic life. That's a fancy way of saying something that you and I as people in journalism understand, which is like, of course, the public should know what news they are paying for. And I understand that you don't make the rules, but by taking the job as board chair, like it, it, yeah. it does seem that this is an okay, at least an okay process with you, a legitimate process that you're okay to be involved within. Well, I'm certainly dedicated to maintaining the integrity of this process to the fullest extent, as are all the members of the board. So I could say that personally, I would see the value of the argument of making that information public. You know, I'm in this role where I'm simply applying the act, and that's not within the, the role of the board to you know, criticize the legislation or certainly not amend the legislation. Okay. You know, I'm happy to actually have this level of just to get some answers. So I'm, I'm I, you know. Sure. It is your kind of marching orders from the guidance you've, you've received that um, you can get rejected for things like if the original news content is not based on facts, multiple perspectives are act actively pursued, researched, analyzed, and explained by a journalist. If the journalism is not produced in accordance with journalistic processes and principles, then you can be rejected and the, and the government, you know, your recommendation will be do not give them QCJO status. I got that right? Okay. We are held to the act, the words of the act, and we cannot disqualify strictly based on the guidance. So the guidance is really there to provide specification, interpretation, kind of, you know, getting more into the weeds, as you say. But we can't disqualify strictly based on journalistic practices and processes. It's really... Is the content original and is the organization really engaged in the production of this in an on an ongoing basis? So the examples I gave, we're not going to disqualify an organization because they're not doing investigative journalism. We're not going to disqualify an organization because they don't have, you know, three or four sources in each article. Can you disqualify them if they publish fake news? Well, of course, we can't do a full analysis of everything they publish for accuracy. That would be really beyond 
the scope of, we'd have to do like one organization a year if you were doing that. Independent research that has been done from other sources on certain organizations, we're certainly going to take that into account. But that to this point has not been, and I'm, I'm searching because, you know, last year we did 159 and we're doing some more this year. Uh, so I don't have all the cases in memory, but uh, I would say that fake news is not the, the it's, it's a very rare occurrence in, in what we see. But again, we're not checking everything for accuracy, of course. The um, conservative website, The Western Standard, has published uh, an article about the process that they went through in uh, applying for QCGO status. And they published the outcome and, and they shared the full outcome with me. Your board told The Western Standard that the board has serious concerns with the organization's journalistic processes and principles, particularly with regard to its coverage of the COVID-19 pandemic. And your board called their stories incorrect or misleading. They had a story about how COVID-19 vaccines are experimental therapy that's being forced on the public by big pharma based on, quote, absolute lies. Your board was very concerned about uh, a story that falsely reported that if people are vaccinated, they're more likely to get the Delta variant than unvaccinated people, which is false. Your board was really concerned about a Western Standard story about ivermectin as a uh, recommended uh, vaccine alternative. Like the Western Standard had tons of misinformation about COVID-19 that your board was really concerned about. And your board found that the Western Standard ran that stuff, but made no attempts to question research or verify the, the quotes that they were publishing. And then your board approved them. You recommended to the government that, that they get government designation as a qualified Canadian journalism organization, which is the first gate they have to get through to then get salary subsidies and a bunch of other very, very beneficial programs. Can you help me understand this? And I understand that you can't talk about the Western Standard, but we can work with that. Hypothetically, why would a news organization that in your board's expert opinion has repeatedly misinformed the public about public health as serious as COVID-19, why should they get QCJO status and then get inclusion potentially and very likely in, in, a, in a big government subsidy program so that the taxpayer can pay them to make more of that kind of misinformation? Well, I'm not going to comment on that specific case, as you correctly anticipated. I mean, when you talk about news that has to be grounded in fact and so on, you know, that certainly is a consideration. But this is not... This, this program is not designed to be hunting for fake news. Other organizations have published things that were inaccurate during the pandemic. And, you know, it's not our job to go hunting for that content. But you found it in this case. And, and it's, this isn't about an error. This is about a pattern. Yeah. When all of these measures were introduced, one of the purposes, as I understood it, was real news is in danger and fake news is taking over and the government's got to step in to subsidize and support real news. I don't think anybody would have wanted this program to ultimately be funding COVID misinformation. Yeah. So how, how could an outcome like this happen? I can tell you in a general way that we look at the overall production. Certain organizations, and I'm not singling out the Western Standard, uh, have produced content that has made these kinds of assertions about the vaccine and about alternate treatments, et cetera. We do look at the overall production of content. 
I don't think I can go any further than that. It seems like you're saying that there is some acceptable level of misinformation that does not disqualify an organization from QCGO status. Like, is there some acceptable level of misinformation that you'll still grant? Is there? You know, I would love to say no, but um, it's it's a difficult question to answer. Um, it's, again, that's not our job to verify, to qualify. I mean, you did say that their stories were false, so that it seems like you were taking on the role of making a judgment call as to whether this... I'm not commenting that specific case. I don't have it in front of me. Okay. And it was a while ago. But, I mean, we're not allowed, anyway, to comment on specific cases. Let me ask you a different question then. I appreciate the position you're in because you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. If you reject, then you are the news cops. If you accept, then you're creating a situation where government funding goes to bad actors and fake news misinformation. That is why this yeah, is Yeah, and being... it's something we struggle with. Yeah. Yes, definitely. If, so, so you've got to make a, a balanced call overall. But of course, you are looking at a news organization at a snapshot in time. Maybe you look at their archives. But if you let an organization in, because let's say they only have 5% misinformation and the rest is good stuff, what happens if there's a change in editorial direction and they become a full-on fake news farm? Can they get kicked out? That's a really good question because, you know, one of the issues with this program is when you give accreditation or designation to an organization you know do we have to review them every year do we have to do you well so far we you know it's only the second year so so far no but there is a discussion and a, a process being implemented in terms of compliance and that's something that's more of a long-term issue so when we do issue serious concerns to us it's kind of a flag that these organizations might not you know, have kind of a free pass for I don't know how many years. But again, how is that going to be put into place? I could not answer. That would be more under the purview of the CRA itself, and they will probably not answer that kind of question. <laughs> I don't want to speculate, but, you know, it's... No, you're probably yeah. right. It's probably impossible to get it. But what we can say um, definitively is that currently there is no oversight. Once you're in the door as a QCJO, the current state of things is that that's the status that you keep and there's no process. There's no process. I, there will be. There will be a process. But again, I can't, I can't certify that. This is a really important point because one of the key issues and why your board exists is that everyone agreed that the government should not be deciding who is a qualified journalist and who isn't. Yes. So we've got this board of experts and you're the chair of it. But uh, when it comes to revoking qualified journalism status... One of the amendments enacted through Bill C-30 provides a mechanism for the minister to revoke an organization's designation as QCJO when the organization no longer meets the requirements to qualify as a QCJO. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's always the minister who decides, but we are going to be involved in that process. And which minister are we talking about here? Minister of Revenue. Uh -huh. Currently, it's Yann Leboutillier. Ultimately, you provide advice, but the minister decides who's in and they can say who's out. And it doesn't seem like there's anything here for them to provide any reasons why or, or transparency of the process or any kind of appeal. They can just say you're out. Well, as you can imagine, this would not be the kind of process that would be taken lightly, exactly for the reasons that, you, yeah. you know, that, that you know. I take uh, very little comfort in, in your, in, in, in your uh, I mean, okay. who knows? I, I, I don't imagine that the minister will do this. It would be pretty extreme, but... 
you know, the notwithstanding clause was never supposed to really be used either, right? Well, it's a completely different, I mean, it's a completely different subject, but... Uh, we're talking about the independent press. We're talking about serious stuff. And we're talking about the independent press being dependent on the minister never using the powers that they currently have. Right? Not unilaterally. So if we advised her, or we advised CRA that we think that this organization, its designation should be revoked, well, then we are supporting that decision and it's no longer unilateral. Yeah, I don't know that there's anything in there. That, that, That's our role, you, right? But you only provide advice, right? The minister does what the minister does. I, I, yes. I, so far, has the minister ever rejected your advice or have they taken your advice every time? To my knowledge, our advice has been taken every time. I guess it is then fair to say that you are the board that chooses who's in, right? Like, you know, it's just advice, but it's advice that's always taken. Well, there is an analysis that is done by CRA, and there is some back and forth between us and the CRA. So it's not like we have a right of life and death over this, these cases. To return to our earlier point that uh, there's some haziness around when you find errors or even misinformation, it might not be disqualifying depending on the overall picture. But one thing that I know from your guidance is that there is no tolerance for hate content. Um, the quote is, publications used for the diffusion of hate content cannot be QCJOs. Do I have that right? Well, that's, again, a legal requirement. Anything that's illegal will be. Right. But there's a specific bit of guidance around hate content that the panel provided to your board. A few years back, the Toronto Sun ran a column by Sue Ann Levy in which she falsely reported that Muslim refugees who were being housed in the Toronto Hotel were filthy, that the place had turned into a zoo, a madhouse, and that these refugees were slaughtering goats in the bathrooms. And it was all lies. And after that story ran, somebody tried to burn down that hotel with everybody inside of it. The National News Media Council called that column a serious breach of journalistic standards. For a lot of people, that would meet the standard definition of hate speech. Mm -hmm. Why... Should Canadians subsidize a media company that publishes hate speech? Well, you're implying that it does. I, I know that we subsidize post media. Yes. The problem is that we can't, you know, the board cannot go through all the content published over the last, well, we do have a certain time frame. Has hate content ever gotten a publication uh, rejected? I can't, I can't comment that on that. Huh. Um, I'm trying to remember the nature of the discussions we would have on that. But um, the problem is also that we just can't pick up on all of the content. It's impossible. Uh, so we look at what they typically produce over the sample that we do have. And if we see that there is a systematic, uh, you know, hateful theme in what they're doing, well, then there's a red light that goes off for sure. But if there, if it's like, a, you know, one or two columns, I think there are press councils, there are other avenues to address these kinds of things for specific pieces of content as opposed to what an organization is typically doing. Yeah, but we live in a country where, like, somebody walked into a mosque and, and, and just opened fire. We live in a country where somebody just ran into... That was in my city. Yeah, I, 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 I am not, friends, I, friends I am not suggesting for a second that you don't care about this as much as any other Canadian. These kinds of stories can have real implications. I think if Post Media publish stories like that again, which divide us against our neighbors and which do inspire people to do violence, I don't know that they're going to want to go to a press council. I think that if Canadians find out that they're paying for that kind of divisive, hateful content, they're going to go to the minister and say, I don't want to pay for this anymore. This is an outrage. 
There is no mechanism for uh, the public. The, I think, I, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but I think the correct process here would be to have this determined legally hate speech. So then you need to go to court for that. And then I think there's other. If the, there is a court decision, because I'm not qualified to say whether something is hate speech or not. It needs to be decided for a court of law. So if that's the case, well, then then we might have an argument. Wait a second. There you, has been a decision. Your, your guidance does tell you that if a publication publishes hate speech, they can't be a QCJO. So yes, and whether it's hate speech is determined by a court of law. Unless a court of law has determined it hate speech, you won't disqualify? Like, I don't think rebel media has ever been formally legally considered hate speech. So you couldn't disqualify any news organization on hate speech grounds unless a court has ruled on, on a it? specific piece on a specific piece of content this is really really troubling stuff professor like for the public to be funding that sure go to the courts sure go to the press council but immediately it's okay for people in the public to say i don't want to spend another dollar i don't want my government spending another dollar on this and there's no mechanism for them oh, people are able to say that people say that about the cbc all the time right they can. And you know what? If enough of them were to get outraged about what they find out they're paying for, if they find it out, because most of these companies, we have no idea if they're being funded by the QCGO program or not. Uh, but if they do find out, I could foresee a situation where there is massive political pressure on the minister to use their powers to disqualify a news organization. So I don't know which is worse. Uh, it, it, it politicizes the news, right? Because there's no mechanism for people to say, hey, the board... Professor Bryn's board missed something, or Professor Bryn's board, they rubber stamped them, but then the publication became much more hateful. We want them kicked out. There's no mechanism for the public to initiate that. It's a totally secret, closed-door process. Mm. So the only avenue is political pressure on the minister, who, who then has a mechanism to just throw out a news company. I'm not sure I would put it that simply. I think there are other ways, but you do address something that is... You know, there is a, a part of reality in what you're saying in the sense that we are unable to assess the full spectrum of what is produced in terms of content. We give an assessment based on a sample and there are, it's possible that we miss things. But in that sense, I mean, I don't see it, how it could be any other way. And we're not the journalism police. We are not a court of law which determines what is hate speech. We have a very specific section of the act that we need to interpret and we have to remain within the confines of that. If there are concerns about certain publications, about certain organizations, those concerns are to be addressed in the proper forums. And I really sound like, it's awful, I sound like a technocrat, <laughs> but it's the way it is. And it's important for a state of law in a democracy for things to be done in the correct way. Professor, I, I don't want you to feel like you have to defend things that aren't yours to defend. Um, I, I, agree I, with you. I appreciate your outrage, Jesse. It's one of the reasons I like talking to you. I mean, it shows that you have a soul. And I really appreciate it and, and appreciate the conversation we're having where you're interested in knowing about the process. I mean, very few people are interested in policy process, to be honest. And I hope people are not falling asleep as we speak. Are you kidding me? This is fascinating. It really is very um, reassuring for us to see how this is being carried out and that there may be imperfections in the process and there's certainly room for improvement. But overall, this is actually, this program has certainly made a difference in helping news organizations survive the last couple of years, which have been extremely difficult for the economy in general, for Canada in general, but for, for media organizations in particular. Professor, I do really appreciate the generosity with your time today. Thank you very much. Well, I just hope that I haven't gone too far in what I've said as, as 
my role uh, allows, but I, I really appreciate this conversation. And it's given me a lot to think about as well. Hi there. You just heard Canada Land, the show where I'm typically joined by a different guest each week for a long feature interview. What you're going to hear next is Canada Land Shortcuts, a topical news show where I'm joined by a different co-host each week and we talk about the media's coverage of various stories in the news right now. Wait for it. Paul Palango, author veteran investigative journalist and uh glass artist how you doing i'm doing fine jesse nice to hear from you again today on the show reality omission at the mass casualty commission will we ever know what really happened at port paul welcome to shortcuts where we talk about the news glad to be here jesse For the first time, we've heard directly from three RCMP members who responded to fires and shootings in Portapique on the night of April 18th, 2020. The failure to contain the gunman and the lack of an emergency alert are expected to come up at a later date when senior RCMP managers, including Commissioner Brenda Lucky, are called to testify. Paul, I think most people in Canada generally feel like it's a good thing that we don't have... CNN here that we don't have like that kind of round the clock cable news coverage where they hop on a big story sometimes and they just sort of make a meal and often it's a very unseemly thing for ratings where they're they're just like round the clock on one thing. But there are occasions where I kind of feel like we would be better served and we would know more about really important stuff if we did have that kind of scrutiny. And I am speaking here specifically about what is unfolding in Nova Scotia right now, the worst mass killing in Canadian history, an incident where there are so many unanswered questions and so much reason to be skeptical of what authorities have been telling us. You've been on this story. In fact, you've sort of been like seized back into journalism out of your retirement as a glass artist and have been leading the charge with reports that I think have taken certain lines of inquiry from the space of like uh, what was considered conspiracy theory to seeping into mainstream media coverage as the facts bear out. People are learning that the questions you've been asking and the revelations that you've been reporting have merit. Finally, we are at this point of this public inquest where we're supposed to get to the bottom of it. And... I don't know, like the coverage, first of all, it looks a little buried. It doesn't seem like there's a tremendous amount of heat or pressure. It doesn't seem like the nation is like, we need to know. Maybe we can start by painting a picture of what is this inquest and what about this inquest should journalists be asking questions about before we even get to the substance of the inquest itself? Well, from the outset, Jesse, in the days after the massacres in April 18th and 19th, 2020, in his first uh, comments on this, first or second comments, Prime Minister Trudeau said, uh, we should not name this individual who killed these 22 people and glorify their infamy. And in a typical Canadian fashion, everyone listened to the government, listened to the Prime Minister, especially the media. And within days, 
they stop reporting on the story, maybe a few weeks. And then, you know, eventually we end up with this inquiry two years down the road. And then the inquiry is saddled with uh, this directive from the uh, from the original order and council that created it, saying that, uh, you know, things must be trauma-informed. That means we can't upset anyone. Restorative justice principles must be used so there's no conflict. We're going to resolve this, resolve 22 murders, basically. And the process would not be adversarial. So we weren't going to find out, uh, have any lawyers asking hard questions. And then they appointed people to run the commission who uh, didn't believe in, uh, you know, Kim Stanton, for example, uh, wrote a book where she basically says uh, the public inquiries are not there to investigate but to be used as tools of social engineering to accomplish political goals, essentially. So I don't want to leave this idea that restorative justice and trauma-informed processes are just somehow uh, bullshit because I think that they come from a place that is trying to be legitimately mindful and, and careful about survivors of things like this. But in this particular case, I do take your point because the survivors are saying through their lawyers that they are not okay with this process. And to be specific here, how is this inquiry maybe not ideal? Well, first of all, the original idea was for this not even to be a public inquiry, but for this to be like a private procedure. That got rejected. So there is a public inquiry, but it's different than public inquiries that anyone's really ever known. Uh, For example, lawyers have to ask permission before they can cross-examine the witnesses. This is a very unusual rule for public inquiries. I saw these photographs of the three RCMP officers who were most involved the night of this awful event, and they're all kind of like on the stand at the same time. They look like they're being like interviewed on a panel TV show. I don't know. I always thought that you separate witnesses so you can get each of their narratives and see if they match each other. You don't let them kind of like figure out their story. Like that's a very strange setup. The partner of the murderer, Lisa Banfield, I know from your previous reporting and our coverage of it and of the story in general, Commons did a fantastic episode on, on Portapik. One of the big outstanding mysteries of this is what exactly happened with her the night of this, because a lot of what she has said just does not pass the smell test. And a lot of people directly involved just were disbelieving and scrutiny of her account, I think, was one of the main things that we need to know more about. But she's not testifying. She has pre-recorded, as I understand it, her narrative so that she can't incriminate herself because she's still facing charges. Do I have that right? She has pre-recorded things. In fact, there's a video. They made a video for her. I'm reporting on that in a piece in Frank Magazine Thursday. And there are just enormous number of questions. As for the charges, no, they laid the charges. They hid behind those charges for more than a year after laying them. And they were penny ante charges of uh, supplying ammunition or transferring ammunition without a permit, which is like a traffic ticket. And then a couple of weeks ago, they said, oh, no, now she's going into restorative justice, and those charges are gone away. She won't have a criminal charge. She's going to testify. But I don't think she really is going to testify. It's just going to be this movie and uh, setting out what she did, but not answering any of the tough questions about her 
that raised a, that are raised the skepticism about her original story. And then, Jesse, you have to look back at this whole notion of, you know, yes, I support the restorative justice theme, but restorative justice has been banned for murder cases and for things involving murder. Mm-hmm. But they're still relying on this to tell the story because they say we want to be trauma-informed. We don't want to inflict any more trauma on the families. But the families are telling me, the ones that will talk to me, say the trauma was having our loved one killed. Now they're aggravating this trauma by not getting to the bottom of what happened. And finally, the big conflict here is that from the beginning, the police and the government and their supporters have tried to make this look like it was a domestic violence case gone wrong. And uh, the scourge of domestic violence must be dealt with in this inquiry. Yes, domestic violence is a problem, but the real issue here of the public inquiry is what the RCMP did before, during, and after the massacres, because there's two different massacres. 13 people are killed in the first one on a Saturday night. The next morning, Wortman kills nine people. At no point does he ever stop. There's no roadblock put up. The RCMP is completely at a loss for more than three hours, and eventually uh, they accidentally run into him and kill him. At the end of that, two public reports come out from the police watchdog, and I was able to show that uh, both those reports were not only just flawed, they're outright lies in that report about what happened, because I had videotape and audio tape showing what really happened. We're not going to be able, in in this space, you've been talking about this on podcasts, you've got a book coming out, there's a lot here, but um, to jog people's memories so they have a bit of a better idea of just exactly what we're so curious about and what remains unanswered, tell me if this is like the list of questions or maybe the the first list of of top-level questions. Why did this go on so long? Why did it take so long for him to be found? That's a big question. Why this was a, a two-day massacre, why he wasn't stopped the night of. Why did the RCMP not issue an emergency public alert that went to everyone's phone? Instead, they put out a tweet. Why did they not warn people in every way they could to be on, on the lookout for a killer in an RCMP police car? That would have saved lives, potentially. Why did the police leave kids, four children, hiding in a basement for hours and hours? There was a shootout at a fire hall, I guess in error because the killer wasn't there. What was that about? Why were the cops opening fire? Here's a big one. What was Gabriel Wartman's relationship with law enforcement prior to this massacre? What were the real circumstances of his death? Was he basically executed by a cop? Did the cop have to shoot him? Was it possible to take him alive? In which case we might know a lot more right now about his past with the police if he was taken alive. And I guess, did the RCMP do everything they could have to stop Wartman while he was on this rampage? Did they do everything they could have to protect the people of Nova Scotia? Now, Paul, I am always more inclined to feel like even cover-ups happen not because of conspiracies to do with complicated plots about police informants, but just because incompetence. I'm always more willing to ascribe to incompetence than to malice or than to some grand design. Obviously, this did not go the way the RCMP wanted it to go, and perhaps the lies that that you say you've uncovered and the unanswered questions and the lack of transparency in this process is just because the RCMP... Like, you know, heads are going to roll or should roll, and they have a lot to answer for or or hide and about just how poor a job they did. How certain are you that it's more than that, that they have more to hide than just being incompetent? 
There's something else there. I've had sources from the beginning telling me that when you find out what really was going on here, it's worse than the 22 people being murdered, which I find hard to believe. That's a big statement, Paul. Yeah, but it's sort of driven me all along. You know, I, I was told they're destroying evidence early on. I found the documents showing that they were destroying evidence. You know, in, in October 2020, a moratorium on the destruction of the evidence in the case of Gabriel Wortman. What are they doing destroying evidence? We still don't know what they were destroying. The RCMP tried to intercede with senior people, the husbands of the operating officers in Nova Scotia, tried to intercede between the police force and the commission. We found, as I said, the tapes and the video showing that Wortman appeared to be executed. No attempt was made to arrest him. So you ask yourself, is this incompetence or is there something else going on? You can make both arguments. The problem is that this is sort of the, uh, the latest outrage in a long history of outrages by the RCMP. Not to advocate for the RCMP, but if indeed the theory that they were working with Wortman as some sort of a confidential source and there's some greater aspect to this, and not even to justify that if it is the case, but I guess when RCMP are working with undercover sources, in fact, I know this from your reporting, they actually are allowed, I mean, you, you know, undercover means deception and means secrets. And they actually have instructions and authority to lie. If asked, was this guy working with you or was somebody else connected to him working with you? They're allowed to lie, right? They're allowed to lie unless asked by a judge. So doesn't this inquest finally give us the ability for like a legal procedure where they can't lie? No, it doesn't. In fact, that's one of the curiosities that since this is an issue, you think they'd bring a judge in to do the job, but they brought in the former chief justice of Nova Scotia, Mr. McDonald, and guess what? The important word here is former. He's not a judge sitting in the capacity of a judge, and by the RCMP rules and the, you know, the government of Canada rules, the RCMP does not have to tell him the truth about any kind of operation like that. This is the judge, incidentally, perhaps, who... Uh I understand, exonerated the former premier of Nova Scotia, Gerald Regan, on a lifetime of sexual assault charges, which there's also an episode of Commons about. Oh, absolutely. People in Nova Scotia remember that. They were outraged by Regan and the egregious assaults against women and young girls. There are journalists who are at this inquest diligently doing their jobs as best they can now, at the end of a process where things have been set up in such a way that certain information comes forward and certain questions can be asked, what's the reporter to do? They don't get to ask questions there. They report on what's getting said. That needs to happen. Tim Bousquet and others are doing that work. There's another thing that the, the media can do, which perhaps we don't do enough in Canada, which is we can use our soapboxes to express outrage and demand better processes and that has not happened in this case. Maybe people will point out some exceptions to me, but for an incident of this magnitude, for a tragedy, for a massacre like this, it's absurd. The mysteries that this is going to leave, I guess I just don't feel a lot of confidence that that long list of questions that I posed earlier, we're going to actually have clarity on. And unless you've got some real revelations up your sleeve in your book, uh, you know, to write a book at this juncture with so many things unanswered to me, Paul, seems like maybe you might also feel like some of this is going to remain in the dark. That vacuum, I can't imagine what that does to those grieving. That mystery gets filled up with anger, suspicion, paranoia, 
it makes closure impossible. You know, the whole point of the book, I said, well, you know, I've written three books on the RCMP. I have a pretty good understanding of how they operate and I'll help other journalists. But I soon realized they were just falling away from the story, losing interest. There was no editorials being written. There was no columnist, not in uh, Nova Scotia or anywhere else, picking up the story, except for Enzo DiMatteo in the uh, Now magazine of all places in Toronto, who occasionally wrote about it. So I decided that I could see what was going on. I could see that they were trying to cover things up. And I felt that I had to put as much as possible on the record so that it landed around the time that I thought the commission would be sitting. Is it the complete story? Hell no. We don't know the complete story, but I'm filling in a lot and raising a lot of questions that need to be addressed. And maybe I'll have to write a second book to complete the thought. Competing narratives, Paul. You know, the inquest is going to have whatever narrative it has. You have a narrative that uh, hopefully through reporting and substantiation, you know, puts... Uh, some kind of a check on that. And other media, you know, Global News had a podcast 13 hours uh, trying to really dive in deep and and tell the whole story. I know from you that when one of the witnesses, Leon Jodry, told Global News that he did not believe Lisa Banfield's story, she spent the night out in the woods, she said, and then walked in looking like without a, a smudge on her clothes. A lot of things didn't add up to this witness. And a Global producer... Cut that, cut that from the podcast and actually said in writing that they cut it because the witnesses' comments were different than the police version of events. And that's the story in a nutshell, that we have a media that is very, very sick in Canada, that it it has come to the point where there's very little initiative taken, no real investigative reporting. You know, what is investigative reporting is challenging the official narrative. And what we have now in Canada is that, by and large, right across the board at every level, all they want to do is accept the official version, as if we're in Russia, for Christ's sake. You saw with the Lisa Banfield story that she came out, she spent all night in the woods, no shoes, no socks. It was zero degrees. She survives with her fingers and toes. And they keep repeating this story over and over and over again. Every time the police put out a new version of the story, Greg Mercer from the Globe and Mail, for example, jumps on it and it's a front page story. The most compelling thing to me was this moment where she knocks on the door of a neighbor after supposedly spending the night barefoot in the woods, zero degrees. And to those neighbors, she just walks in kind of fresh as a daisy and their impression, and they live there and they know what those nights are like. They said, this isn't right. She's not telling the truth. Well, not only that, Jesse, what she did when she came to the door, according to Leon Jodry, is he said, it's 634 in the morning. And he goes, what are you doing here, Lisa? Gabriel doesn't like me. She says, oh, she turns and goes to leave. Well, excuse me. She's supposed to be in the woods for eight and a half hours. Her common-law husband's killed all these people, set the neighborhood on fire, and she says, oh, she's being polite. She's not desperate to be rescued. And there are other examples of that in her story that just make it not believable, you know, not credible. And she should be cross-examined, and they're doing everything they can not to cross-examine her, which raises questions about what is her relationship to the police? Why are they protecting her? (laughs) 
Paul, that is Shortcuts for this week. I really want to thank you for joining me for it. Oh, anytime, Jesse. I'm always here. Otherwise, I'm just being a glass artist. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. I can be emailed at jesse at CanadaLand.com. Paul, what is the name of your book? It's 22 Murders, an Investigation into the Massacres, Cover-Up, and Obstacles to Justice in Nova Scotia. I think it's important that people read this book. This episode is produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Theme music is by So Called. Syndication by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca.